It was like a second honeymoon. One year after I was married, my wife and I flew to the Caribbean. Well, back to my home in Grenada where I'd already lived for six years and taught school. But this time I had a wife. And unlike the first six years where I lived on the compound, uh, 20 steps to school and 40 steps to church, we were now moving into a new community, a five-minute walk away, with the opportunity to connect with new people and new neighbors. And we did. The first two months were incredible. New people, new connections, new friends. And then came the unexpected holiday. Everybody was off work. Everybody stayed home. People were in a very happy mood for this unexpected holiday showed up on a Tuesday. What was so special about a Tuesday? Well, on Tuesday is when Hurricane Ivan was going to hit Grenada. Now, if you walked through the community on that day, you would have heard comments like, boy, I hope this one hits us. We're tired of hurricane watches and warnings, and then they blow over. Maybe we'll finally get something. (laughs) About 2 o'clock, it got windy. It got dark. Then it got a little more windy and a little darker. And the uneaten pizza that we had spent the morning making and passing out to all of our neighbors was forgotten. Windows were closed, doors were pulled shut, and the hurricane came with full force. It blew many, many things, including 92% of Grenada's housing, into various states of disorganization and damage. My wife and I huddled in our approximately four by eight bathroom, hanging on to each other, and we spent those moments praying. First, we prayed for the eye of the hurricane, never stopping to realize that just because a hurricane hits you doesn't guarantee that you get the eye. Some people never get the eye when the hurricane hits them, but we were sure we'd get the eye. We prayed for that. We, we confessed sin. <laughs> sin that had already been confessed. And some that we hadn't even committed, I think. Because this could be our day to meet the Lord. We heard the tin and the rafters wrenched out of the concrete walls upstairs and blown behind us. We heard tin crashing into buildings, the whistle of the wind. The eye came and we ran to a safer place back to the compound. And the next morning we returned to our community. We found some awesome neighbors who had went into our house and found my laptop, found my Bible, which still has water stains in it from the hurricane, found our camera, found some passports, found some cash, and they protected that for us. But we also discovered, as we walked back to our house one day, that on the line of our neighbors hung my wife's clothing. Now, for them to get to that clothing meant they had to be pretty deep within our house. We also discovered that our home was the, one of the places the looters stowed their things, including a box of electric can openers, which, considering we weren't going to have electric for six weeks, weren't going to do you too much good. 
Uh, the one day I returned home to get some things, went upstairs and discovered a couple quickly finishing up a, a, an embrace on the bed that Jen and I called our bed in our bedroom. And that was the day I realized significantly this was no longer home. What we had loved so dearly was gone. And we never did move back to that community. We never did move back to that house. It didn't feel like home. What does it take for God to feel at home in your heart? What does it take for God to feel at home in our churches? What does it take for God to feel at home in our schools? That is what I would like to consider in the first session tonight. This is a picture of my family and our children. Uh, They are enjoying the gym right now with uh, Glendon and Starla's children. So if you see them around, you'll know where they belong, and uh, you can send them our way if they need uh, need directed in any way in their lives, or just teach them something. You're all teachers. <laughs> you'll see on the front side of your handout, which this would be the front, a little description for the weekend, which, Gerald, thank you so much for that introduction. That was very helpful and uh, very appropriate. <clears throat> I felt like I was at the right place and that uh, what I prepared is, is going to fit. And each of the sessions will serve as a component, a component that I believe is necessary if we are to build brotherhood. These are components that I believe need promoted in our churches, but also in our schools. And to start tonight, we'll take a look at the first of those components. As Gerald mentioned, I I have spent a lot of time thinking and uh, participating in school as well as church. When I graduated in 1996, uh, I graduated from a homeroom of 11th and 12th grade because it was a small class. And I graduated out of 12th grade, and three months later, I was a homeroom teacher for 11th and 12th grade, which meant I now had my classmates from the year before as my students. That may or may not have been a good thing, but it was my reality. And I, I taught it at at that school one year, and then moved to Grenada, uh, taught there six years, came back, and uh, got married to my wife, Jennifer, and taught another year at the school I graduated from. And then we returned to Grenada for three years together as a couple, and uh, helped to pastor the church there, and uh, serve as director for the mission and the school administrator. And then when we moved back from Grenada, I was ready for a break. And a paintbrush, I discovered, did, did exactly what you told it to do. Unlike students, unlike some teachers, (laughs) a paintbrush did exactly what I said. And I experienced a great year of refreshment painting. And uh, about two-thirds of the way through that year, Glendon called me and said, would you be interested in teaching at Ephraim Mennonite School? And I said, yes, I think I'm ready for the classroom again. And uh, that was 10 years ago, and I'm still involved at Ephrata on a very part-time basis. The reason it's part-time is... Another part of the transition as we moved home from Grenada, we, ca- we served as a, as a youth pastor in our district of churches, and then we're ordained to serve as pastor at our home church at Martindale Mennonite, and uh, three years ago uh, called to, to the role of bishop in our district. And so church has been a part of our lives just like school has been a part of our life, and it's out of that context 
that we want to consider this topic tonight. So the first component that I believe needs promoted, and you can turn to the other side of your handout, the first component I'm calling tonight the foundation of brotherhood. The foundation of brotherhood. Tonight, what I would like to do is talk to you about four phases of construction. And I believe that if you can participate in these four phases of construction, you're going to lay a good foundation for brotherhood in your context. Four phases of construction. And again, if you as a Christian can can participate in these phases, you will do well at building brotherhood in your context. I would invite you, if you have your Bible along, to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to use this chapter as the scriptural foundation for what we want to talk about tonight. Ephesians chapter 2. And it might be helpful just to give you a definition as I think about brotherhood tonight. I know there are many ways we could define it, but I would like you to think about it as the calling we share as God's children. And it's, it's the posture of our heart. The calling we share as God's children, the, the posture of, our, of my heart. I don't think brotherhood is necessarily a tool you pull out of your pocket or out of your tool belt and use. I, I think it's, a, it's an attitude of the heart that you bring with you to the context in which you're serving. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin by taking a look at the first three verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. It reads like this. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, these verses don't sound like we're talking about building. And that's because the first phase of construction that I believe is necessary if we're to build brotherhood is the phase of demolition. We need to consider demolition. And this is a tough phase of reconstruction. It's saying goodbye to what has been. It's saying goodbye to some things that are very familiar. It's saying goodbye to what has defined us. But in order for brotherhood to be, to be grown, to be built, we do have to take a look at demolition. You see, our very nature, as these first three verses describe, our very nature causes us to, to be born dead. To be born dead. Could somebody tell me the reference for that very popular Bible verse, God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves? <laughs> really? You laugh. That's not in the Bible? No, it's not. And do you know why it's not in the Bible? You've heard it, right? Yeah, you've heard it. It's not in the Bible because it's not true. And it can't be true because you being born dead can't offer yourself anything worthwhile 
to get God's attention to prove that you deserve His attention. You've, you've been born dead. These verses describe this deadness. It mentions trespasses, sins, children of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, the lust, the desires of our body and our mind, our behavior as children of wrath. They all converge to form a building, a building that stands in opposition to the work that God longs to do in our hearts. It's the old man. It's the sinful nature. And it's this building that needs to enter the phase of demolition in order for God to begin this work of brotherhood. The phase of demolition. And we know how sin has impacted our lives. And I believe you've already entered that phase. And you've already experienced places in your life where God has brought down what has stood in opposition to Him and has, has done some amazing work in its place. But I just want to caution you, demolition is not only for the day that you invited Christ into your heart. It's amazing how quickly things can be built in our lives that stand in opposition to God. And I, I just call you to be alert to what's, what crops up in your life that stands in opposition to God and be willing to enter the phase of demolition for the sake of the brotherhood. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. <clears throat> but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus." For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. What a breath of fresh air the first two words of verse 4 are. After three verses of describing what needs demolished, we have this interjection of, but God, wow, but God, who is so able to do that work of grace and that rebuilding in our lives, which is the second phase, the second phase of construction that I believe you must participate in to build brotherhood is the, is the phase of reconstruction, God, rich in mercy, rich in love, takes action on our behalf. It says that while we were dead, He quickened us. While we were dead, He made us alive. There's no way our good works could accomplish that. Because remember, we were born dead. We do not have that ability to self-resurrect ourselves. We also see that this gift of of grace is given before the works are done. It's by grace that we're saved. Not of ourselves. Not of our own works. Otherwise, we could boast and brag about how well we've done. 
The gift is given before the works are done. We're created for good works, but grace does not come because of those good works. We are his workmanship, his workmanship, not our own. Not our own. But you know what? I work so hard. And you do too. We, we long to prove that we can do it. We long to earn our experience. We long to demonstrate that, that we can handle this. We long to, to prove to others that, that we're good and that God's work in us was a good thing. And we so quickly find ourselves living out of our own works, demonstrating, earning, proving, showcasing what, what I can do. That runs so deep within us. We long to, to keep our hands around our growth and our development. We long to, to help God know how much is too much and, and when to ease up and, and when to thrust us forward for, for more. We so desperately long to control that reconstruction process. About two... Well, let me, let me talk about this first of all. First grade, it was. First grade, I was invited to a class sleepover. My, my first grade teacher invited all the boys in my class for a sleepover. She was going to do that for the girls too, but she invited all the boys. And all the boys in the class were excited about this, except me. I didn't really do new social situations with a lot of confidence. All the other boys, well, the one other boy in my class, <laughs> were going to the sleepover. And he couldn't figure out why I wasn't coming. Now, I was not going to tell him that I was scared and nervous and unsure about how this would go being away from home. But I sounded very calm and in control. And, well, yeah, I'm not going to be coming to the sleepover. However, uh, I'm having a sleepover, too. Why don't you come over to my house? And, and he was like, Okay, well, yeah, but you're not coming to the teacher's sleep? No, 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 I'm not going to be there at that one. And so in my fear and in my unwillingness to enter new territory or be stretched or to grow, I instead took control and, and worked out the situation in a way that I'd be safe and, and everything would be okay according to me. And he did come over, and we had a sleepover, and I think it was all right. But he also went to the teacher's sleepover for all the boys. And uh, I guess had a good time. <laughs> I'll never know. Because I was busy coming up with coping strategies to protect myself. And you know what? I I'm 39. And, and you know what? I'm still coming up with coping strategies to protect myself. So quickly, we revert to this control or this desire to not have to do anything scary or difficult. About two years ago, my wife and I were at a marriage retreat. And the, after several sessions in the retreat, 
uh, we came to an activity where we were to uh, engage in some prayer journaling. And we were to go to our journals individually and just write um, as we reflected on the sessions we'd had and what we, we heard the Holy Spirit impressing on our lives, we were to write what we heard. What is Jesus speaking to me? Was the question. And this is what I wrote in my journal at that time. Daryl, just let me love you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to deserve it. You need to be willing to be a vulnerable little child and crawl up on my lap. Trying to earn my love makes it hard for you. It makes it hard for you to parent accurately. Your children may believe you only love them if and when they're good enough or perform to your liking. It means your wife also may not be confident in knowing she is always and wholly and only loved. She may feel like she needs to measure up and earn your approval or meet your specs before you will bestow love on her. So after our time of journaling, we had to get back together as couples and show each other what we wrote. So I'm like, here, Jen, this is what I wrote. And she gave me her journal, and this is what was in her journal. I struggle with feeling like I don't perform well enough as a housewife, and I don't measure up to others and feel like I need to perform better to be accepted. And I was like, like, it's true. It's exactly what's happening. We live with DNA, I believe, that encourages us to just be quiet and to let all of our works do our talking. Let our works do our evangelizing. Let our works do our speaking up for Jesus. We've traded being quiet, not using our speech, for farming the land. We do know how to work hard, but I fear in my own life the drive to work hard, to be successful and to achieve and to avoid failure places me at conflict with what God so deeply longs to do in my heart. And that is reconstruct it according to his specs. It's easier for me to think about earning it and working for it and proving that I deserve it by my works. But God says... Daryl, your righteousness is as filthy rags. And God longs to rebuild us. God longs to do this, this, this reconstruction, to take us through this phase. He doesn't just use the first phase of demolition to help us realize how much we need him and then say, just live there. And just remember, you need me. No, he says, I, I've got a work of grace to do in your heart. And I want to bring about this phase of reconstruction. And, Gerald, I appreciated this so much in your opening. He highlighted the fact that as we are saved, we're not saved to remain individuals. We're saved into a body. And this is your homework tonight. Read through Ephesians chapter 2 and count up the amount of personal pronouns or nouns that you see. There's, There's all over the place us and we and, and, and then all the, the words together, the, the word together shows up. God loved us. He quickened us. He raised us. He made us sit. 
He showed us his grace and kindness and completely recreates us. And after all those us's, we usually have the word together. And there, it is a process that, that we do together. And I think part of understanding this reconstruction is, is this, this understanding that God builds together in our lives. God has not designed your life to happen individually. So how is God inviting you to partner with someone else to accomplish and and to, I guess I would say, to support this work of reconstruction that he longs to do in us? How is God inviting you and your fellow teachers, you and your uh, friends, you and your fellow church members to together Talk about this phase of reconstruction and and to allow it to come to pass in your life. The phase of demolition, the phase of reconstruction, so clearly a phase that God longs to do through the grace that he offers, this workmanship that he desires to create in us through Christ Jesus. Let's go to verses 11 to 17. And look at the third phase. So we have the phase of demolition, the phase of reconstruction, and this third phase that I believe we need to participate in if we are to build brotherhood is the phase of renovation. Ephesians 2, 11 to 17 reads like this. Wherefore remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, and hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace." And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. The phase of renovation. This section of verses helps us see that there are two groups of people that are pretty far apart. We've got the Gentiles and we have the Jews. Just take a look at the Gentiles' resume in verse 12. They were without Christ. They were aliens. They were strangers. They had no hope and they were without God. Can can it get much worse than that? There's really nothing going for the Gentiles according to verse 12. However, I believe there are three times we, we have this reference to there being two that became one in this section of verses. You see it, first of all, in verse 14, it says he's made both one. And then at the end of verse 15, twain, one new man. 
And then in verse 16, both are reconciled into one body. There's a wall that has come down in this section. Both Gentiles and Jews are no longer alienated or separated. The Gentiles are welcome to come nigh. They are welcome to share the grace and the forgiveness that the Jews were offered. Peace was preached to both of them. Part of building brotherhood is keeping our eyes open for the walls that need torn down, for the renovation that God longs to do in our relationships. Keep your eyes open for those walls. There was a project I started with my sons last Christmas. We had some gorgeous weather over Christmas break, and we started the treehouse. And we made good progress on the treehouse. And then Easter break came, and there was some beautiful weather over Easter break. And the treehouse took another step forward in its phase of construction. And then summer break came when the treehouse was going to get finished. All phases completed. But at the end of the summer, the treehouse was in the same phase of construction as it was at the beginning of summer. And it was eating up my boys. They said, Dad, you said that the treehouse is our allowance, it's our payment, but like, it's not happening. So are you going to start paying us then again? It's like, no, no, the treehouse is your payment. Well, when? And summer happened, and the treehouse stayed the same. And as we entered September, there was a window of time where we began work at the treehouse again. But I knew that enough of a wall had gone up between my sons who said, Dad committed to the treehouse but at this rate, the treehouse will be finished in time for our weddings. <laughs> and they began to doubt that I was going to keep my word. And that was a wall going up. And so before we went out in September and just tackled the treehouse, I felt clearly that I needed to stop and own the fact that I had allowed a wall to be built. And we talked about the wall and that the wall came because I didn't keep my word and they're wondering if dad means what he says. And if I don't address that effectively and set that type of example for them as a father, that certainly can impact what they're going to believe about God someday and his ability to be faithful to them. So we talked about that and, and uh, prayed about it. And, and I just needed to own the wall that was there. And, and then we started working at the treehouse again. And it's, it now has three walls. It needs a roof. And I've got to keep my word. So you can ask my kids uh, when you see them this, this uh, weekend how the treehouse is coming. Um, it's, it's a wall that I can't let crop up between us. 
But those walls come so quickly. It can come between you and a co-teacher. It can come between spouses. It can come between leaders and church members, administrators and teachers, co-workers who seem to have the inside track, always find out the news about the school before you do. Walls can crop up between patrons with different perspectives and priorities. And then we have life, like the suffering that we endure, the tragedy, the unexpected blessing, the financial up or the financial down, uh, God's new revelation of calling in someone's life. All of those can be places that, that walls crop up. And we realize that we are not communicating and we're not fellowshipping like God has called us to. We must tear down those walls. The, the way the Jews and the Gentiles were relating to each other and the distance between them was something God tore down with the work and person of Jesus Christ. And today, when we permit walls to stand between our relationships with people, A, we're not contributing to, the, to building brotherhood, and B, it's, it's kind of this, this building that gets erected saying, God, yes, your grace, but I, it wasn't big enough for my situation. And, and that needs demolished. And we need to be willing, not just to let God reconstruct us, but there are times that walls that we put up, we have to own them as well and be willing for God to do that work of renovation in our lives. That to take us through the phase of, of tearing down and creating the opening where peace can again flow. The phase of demolition, the phase of reconstruction, and the phase of renovation. Part of this process of building brotherhood. Let's look at the final phase phase. Ephesians chapter 2 again, and the last five verses. 18, I'll begin reading. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You know, the final phase of building is habitation. Like you get to live in what you built, right? You got to move in. You need to enjoy the fruit of the labor that God has accomplished. Habitation. God lives where there is peace. Strangers and foreigners, we don't see them living together. But family does. Family shares a house. And this house that we're talking about here tonight is is a house that has a cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. It has a foundation of apostles and prophets. And it has us being the rest of the house. The pieces that are fitly joined together. So carefully put together to create the household of God. 
the habitation of God, the place that God lives, the place that He dwells, the chief cornerstone loves to live in the house for which He is the chief cornerstone. The results of peace being in the house, it says in verse 21 that this this building fitly framed together grows into a habitation. And it says that, I'm sorry, it grows unto a holy temple. And then verse 22, another result of peace in the house is this is God's habitation. God through His Spirit is present in the house. Picture yourself at the end of a long day coming to your favorite place to relax. And right now, tonight, I'd say it's this chair up here. I've not figured out why it's up here and no one's sitting in it, but I just might sit in it some other evening. A place you can come in, prop your feet up, and relax. That pillow home sweet home at your side, your favorite mug of hot tea or coffee with French vanilla creamer beside you, your favorite book, if it's a rainy day, your favorite affigan, you're relaxed. You're at home. You can take your shoes off. And it doesn't matter if your socks have holes in them. Because you're at home. I think that's what God so desperately longs to do in us. He wants to be at home. He wants to be able to enjoy the function of the household. He wants to inhabit it. He longs for it to be his habitation. I recently experienced this. Last Saturday, we didn't work at the treehouse because instead we went hunting. I have a friend in Delaware who said, do you want to bring your boys hunting? And I've hunted when I was a teenager for a couple of years, and then I started teaching school and discovered that Thanksgiving break is worth far more to me in my classroom, getting caught up and catching my breath and grading, than it is sitting in the rain in the woods not having anything to hunt. So I stopped hunting. <laughs> and I no longer have a gun or orange or camo or the gun cabinet or anything. But... I thought it would be neat if my boys could at least try their hand at hunting. So my friend from Delaware says, do you want to take your boys hunting? I said, hey, that sounds great. He said, bring them down. He said, I have the guns. I have the tree stands. I have the spot. I have the vests. All you have to do is go to Delaware's hunting and fishing website and print off the deer tags. And since your boys are underage, they're free. So within five minutes, each of my boys had deer tags, allowing them to shoot five deer each. And we drove... (laughs) I'm serious. We drove to Delaware and got up the next morning and walked out into the woods. And in two hours, my son had a six-point buck. And that was hunting. And this year we went back. And as I set foot into my friend's house, I told my wife I felt a distinct ability to forget everything else back home. I said I felt like I could relax. My friend is very driven, very 
intense. But that worked in my favor because he got all his work done on Friday. And so Saturday, he was free just to take care of us. And so we hunted a few hours in the morning, came home and ate an incredible brunch, uh, took naps because we were up really early, and then went out for a few hours in the afternoon again. And I, I had no responsibilities other than to be his guest and to inhabit what he so freely offered to me. His house, his tree stand, all four of us, both my sons, myself, and my friend, all four of us were in the same tree. In a double tree stand and a single tree stand, we fit all four in. And we inhabited it together. (laughs) It was very close fellowship. But to me, a picture of what God so desperately wants to do in my life with my brothers and sisters. And my willingness to participate in the construction phases, the phase of demolition, the phase of reconstruction, the phase of renovation, and the phase of finally the habitation of God, letting God in, inviting God to to dwell there. Those four phases, if I commit to them, I believe will give me what I need to participate and contribute to the brotherhood God so desperately longs for me to be a part of and for me to contribute to by letting him turn me into his workmanship. I can refuse these phases. I can refuse to participate. But I will also then be the one that is putting up walls. I will also be the one that is creating distance where God longs to bring togetherness and where God longs to dwell. So here's what I'd like you to do. You know when you throw out a discussion question in your classroom, you have about 25% of your students that love to talk. And so they all answer it first. And about 50% are happy to let others talk, and about another 25% are just so glad you didn't pick them because they won't talk or are scared to talk. So one of the things that is helpful when you want a discussion is, first of all, ask everybody to write down what they're thinking. And now everybody has an equal voice, and you know everybody has something to say, and you don't just have to let the talkers uh, rule the day. So we're going to practice that tonight. So your assignment in the next two minutes is to reflect which phase of construction is God calling you to do some work in? Which phase tonight did you say, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at? Or which phase did you say, you know what? God just brought me through that. I've experienced that. Take two minutes and reflect. At the end of that reflecting I want you to to then quickly jot down a a one to two sentence summary of that. Not a paragraph, not an essay here. Just one or two sentences. That's why you're reflecting first. Don't start writing yet. You're reflecting and then you write and then we're going to relate. Um, We're just going to stand up at the end of that time, make groups of four or five, and I just want you to relate to each other what it is Uh, you have experienced in these phases of construction. Now, I think you just did 
a little bit of brotherhood building because you are sharing with someone what God is doing in your heart. It's really pretty easy. And this weekend, yes, you may need to start with uh, what's your name if they lose their name tag or forget to wear it. And you may find it helpful to know where they've come from. And yes, maybe it is even necessary to ask them what the weather's like where they've come from. But please, don't stay there. Continue the conversation. What phase of construction have you been experiencing as a result of God's workmanship in your life? That's a question you can ask. We all have this common vocabulary now after the first session for the weekend. So when you meet someone, ask them, uh, what phase are you in? And you can continue the work of brotherhood. Again, I believe we can lay this foundation for brotherhood by participating in these four phases. And as you think about brotherhood, again, the calling we have as God's children, it's the posture of heart that we bring with us to the areas in which we minister.